listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast with Mark LaCour and Paige Wilson. This is the show for busy oil pros who quickly want to keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. You're listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast brought to you by IBM. This is a show for busy oil pros who want to quickly keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. Thanks for joining us for episode 290. What's up, Mark? What's up is Cedar. Oh, dude. Yeah, if you have allergies, it's not a good place to be in Houston right now during our frigid winter of 69 degrees today. <laughs> the cedar's high, the mold's high, but the ragweed's low, right? Yeah, something, something like, like that. that. Yeah. It doesn't matter. It sucks. So if my voice is deeper than normal, that's why. It's both of us, really. And then before we get into all the stuff, a couple of things, you hear me say this all the time. If you want to leave a review, we have a new tool. makes it ridiculously easy on any platform. If you want to try to remember it, it's lovethepodcast.com forward slash OGTW. Just easier go to the show. Just click on the link. And then Paige, you know what we're doing the first week of February? Nape. Nape, our favorite conference of all time. We're doing something different that's never been done before. OGGN is setting up a podcast pavilion. So not only will the OGGN team of podcasters be there, but we're inviting every other podcaster that touches energy. So the crypto guys, the solar guys, the wind guys, the geothermal. Or women. Or women. Peeps, storage, anything to do with energy, business. We're inviting all of them to come record podcasts. If that sounds like you, if you have a podcast that touches energy in some form or fashion, reach out to me directly. We will get you a press pass so you get in free. There's some other perks you get, and then you can record live at the show. We have all the gear, all the equipment. All you need to do is just show up. And all of this is being made possible by, by Caterpillar Oil and Gas, so a big shout out to them. Woo woo. And we're going to have an espresso bar there, right? And so the espresso bar is going to be made possible by Infosys and Appian. So I want to thank those great people for making all that happen. So if you come to Nate and you don't have a podcast, come swing by the podcast pavilion, say hi, and listen to some of the great conversation that will be going on there live. Yeah, that should be fun. It should be a blast. Yeah. So we do have a review. It's a five-star, and it's titled Episode 281. Hey, Mark and Paige, first time reviewer, listener of 12 months. What this show is, the show is a combination of the most pressing news in a few minutes with a knowledgeable and authentic approach, and it's produced well with crisp audio. Thanks for that. Yay, Emin. What this show is not, the show is not, quote, petrochemical engineering for dummies, end quote, podcast edition. It's good to learn about the chemicals around you before having an opinion on a topic. Insulation, paint, nail polish, coolant, detergents, packaging, adhesives, Water treatment, paint centers all come from upstream feedstocks with efficient efforts, crude and natural gas at the very top. To your one-star reviewer, let's all enjoy those plastic straws and insulated <laughs> walls that have a calm conversation over a cup of coffee about what crude and petrochemicals means to you. Mark Page, keep up the good work. Jordan Brogdon. Man, what a great review. That's Jordan. one of the longest ones we've had. Longest ones, but you absolutely think like we do. Oh, you're from the U.S. We don't yeah. say where, but sincerely, this was a very, you spent a lot of time writing this review and we really appreciate it. Plus, it was funny. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, it's first Friday Q&A. So, uh, of course, as always, the first question comes from Luvik. He says, if you need help, let me know. I do think you should do the beauty thing. I guess he's talking to me. Right. Not about beauty, but barbecue guns and cars for me to be true to yourself. And see, I think he's talking to me. I think he's talking to you. Right there. Yeah. yeah. And so, Luthwick, I bet you're talking about that episode where somebody said, I should do a beauty blog too if Paige do it. And I said, no. Oh, that's right. That was last Friday Q&A. Yeah. But seriously, Luthwick, that's a pretty good idea. I wouldn't mind doing a blog about barbecue guns and cars. I don't have time, but it would be a blast, literally. <laughs> <No> <laughs> right, right. Dun, 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 dun. 
All right. So the next question is from John, which is the owner of Drinkwater Products. Enjoyed listening to the Q&A with the Shell USA president last week and had two questions. Okay, here's the first one. When talking about the energy transition, does that mean that there will be less oil and gas produced over the next 10 to 20 years? Or does that mean it will all be produced in a cleaner, more environmentally friendly way? So, John, two answers to that question. If you ask the people that don't like the oil and gas industry, they will try to tell you that there'll be less hydrocarbons or oil and gas produced over the next 20 years. That's not true. It's not reality. The reality is every year for the next 20 years, we will produce more hydrocarbons, but we're going to do it in a more environmentally responsible way. Now, let me be very careful when I say this. The U.S. produces the cleanest hydrocarbon molecule in the world. Where the work needs to be done to be more environmentally responsible is other countries that produce. And what we need to do here in Europe is help those other countries produce their hydrocarbons since they're going to be produced anyway and do it in a way that's just more environmentally responsible. All right. So the second question is, our company does a lot of work with pipeline companies, and I was wondering what the future of the pipeline industry looks like going forward in this new clean energy environment. I'm assuming things like biofuels will still need pipelines along with new pipelines for CCS, et cetera. Yeah. So first thing, John, don't worry about the hydrocarbon pipeline industry slowing down. It's on a rampage and will be (laughs) for the next 20 or 30 years for a bunch of reasons. So the hydrocarbon business of pipelines will continue and continue to grow. Actually, it's growing at record pace. But you're also right that things like biofuels, except for ethanol, and then carbon dioxide itself will also spur new business in pipelines. So if you're in the pipeline business, the next 100 years is going to be hot for you, not just here in the U.S. and Europe, but all over the world. And I think we talked about this, maybe even my predictions, but the other thing that's happened in the pipeline industry is you're having all these pipelines need to be built here in the U.S. to help produce LNG for Europe. But then in Europe, they have to build another set of pipelines mm-hmm. and offloading terminals and regasification plants to bring that natural gas from the U.S., which will be moved via LNG to put it in their system. So the pipeline industry is strong globally, and it will be for a very long time. Good deal. All right. So the next question is from Tim Hillard. Can you guys discuss the timelines for the refineries that went offline to convert to renewable diesel, et cetera? Are they coming back? He also says it would be great if you could have Dr. Jen Wilcox on one of your podcasts. She is leading the fossil fuels part of the DOE. Hey, hook it up, man. I'd love to have her on industry leaders. So if you have a connection there, please reach out and make a connection to Paige. She would be a great guest for Paige's show. As far as the biodiesel refinery conversions, off the top of my head, Sinclair did one in Wyoming, I think in Cheyenne. And then you have Marathon and Phillips 66 in California also converting hydrocarbon refineries to renewable diesel refineries. A couple of things about this. One of the things that you don't hear a lot of is what makes those things financially profitable. And the proof is it's subsidies. They're converting hydrocarbon refineries right now where there's a constraint in refining to biodiesel doesn't make fiscal sense, but it does make fiscal sense if the state of the federal government's throwing money in, which is actually what's happened to those three that just rattled off. And actually in California, it was interesting. They were getting ready to shut that refinery down completely because the state's laws are so constraining their business that it didn't make fiscal sense for them to keep it. Which is so sad. Yeah, it really is. And so by moving over to biofuels, they went from the state penalizing them, not letting them build new rail, not letting them build new pipelines to the state of California, actually giving them money and then allowing them to build rail terminals and pipelines. You can't make this stuff up. (laughs) So that's what's going with the biodiesel. And the other thing that's happening, especially if you're 
an over-the-road trucker is it's, it's becoming more and more apparent that biodiesel doesn't deliver the same miles per gallon as conventional hydrocarbon diesel, which then affects your ability to make a profit. If you're a residential, like commercial, like just a pickup truck or a car that runs diesel, you don't notice that big a difference. But the over-road truckers, you know, every one-tenth of a cent makes a difference. So I don't really see a huge growth in biodiesel. And then the other thing that's happening, you know, I've talked about for a year and a half how diesel prices in the world have spiked and they're expensive and they're adding costs to farmers and everything. Paige, I'm starting to see a decline in demand in diesel coming in 2024. Really? Which things will lower prices. Yeah. You know, this is January. It's not going to be until probably the last quarter of this uh, year, okay. but I see it on the horizon, which means if conventional diesel prices fall, which I think they will into this year, then it makes the financial case for biodiesel even harder because it's more expensive to produce. Mm-hmm. Okay. Next question comes from Geo. Hi, guys. I work for an American oil and gas company here in the UK as a business graduate, which means I spend X amount of months in different business functions such as finance, procurement, projects, etc. I am non-engineer with my degree being in business, and I was wondering what advice you have for non-engineers that can progress their career and climb the ladder as it doesn't seem as straightforward than as if I were an engineer. Any advice is appreciated. Thank you. You know what makes this kind of sad? Hmm. There's so much truth into what he just said. (laughs) I do know what it is. It's history and it's culture. But in the oil and gas industry, for as long as I've been in it, the people that move up in ranks are engineers. And no hate mail from engineers. Y'all do some incredible work around the world involving everything. Modern life would not be possible without engineers. But there's just something that's not quite right about an engineer being head of sales, right? Or an engineer being head of Well, marketing. yeah, because, I mean, they speak a different language. And it's a different personality and skill set. But in the oil and gas industry, the odds are if you're a chief revenue officer or chief marketing officer, you have some engineering background. But, Gio, a couple of thoughts. So when you look at especially the big oil and gas companies in the world, all of them have some type of renewable portfolio in their business. And for me, it seems that the renewable part of their business, they're not as focused on the people in upper management being engineers. They want them to be business leaders because the renewable side of their business is low margin. And I know people hate when I say that, and I'm going to get some hate mail around it, but it's compared to the hydrocar business, it's true. And so they're more worried about being able to drive efficiencies, being good with their finances, being creative with things like projects. And so if you don't want to go back to school and get an engineer, you want to climb the company ladder, I would look at that side, the renewable side of the big oil and gas companies. The other thing you may want to pick up is a project management certificate, yeah, PPM. That goes a long way in this century. It actually, in some companies, that is as equal to sometimes even better than being an engineer because project management skill sets cross all businesses. Yeah. Unlike engineering, you know, if you're a petroleum engineer, that means one thing. But if you're a project manager, you can manage any project from a small IT project to a multi billion dollar deep water installation. So that's a little bit of advice, but I'm sorry, Gio, that engineers get moved up quicker than non-engineers. And it's unfortunate, it's just part of being in the industry. Yeah, it is. I mean, I don't have a college degree and I, I did regulatory. So it's just, you know. And I run an oil and gas podcasting company. My degree's in wildlife <laughs> management. Go figure that one out. All right. So Seth Tandet with the Concrete Logic podcast says, hello, Mark and Paige. I host a podcast focused on the concrete industry. As you probably know, our industry is very dependent on the price of diesel. My question to you is, is why is the diesel and the gas prices so far apart? Looking back through the price history on the Department of Energy's website, it appears that we have the biggest delta between gas and diesel that we've ever seen. What's up with that? Thank you for the insight and keep up the great work. So you know what I did? What? 
I invited Seth to our podcast for Philly. Oh, cool. I was going to ask. So, Seth, if you don't know what I'm talking about, check your junk mail. I actually replied back to you. I emailed you. Would love to have you join us. And concrete touches energy a lot. I can't think of a single energy project in, that doesn't involve concrete. Seriously. So, I would love to have you come join us. I'd love to meet you in person. Why is that delta there? Quite frankly, it's simple market dynamics, supply and demand. The demand for diesel has outgrown the demand for gasoline. But the supply of diesel hasn't caught up yet. So diesel is extremely expensive, not just here in the U.S., all over the world. Like I said earlier, I think I see the light at the end of the tunnel at the end of this year. I think demand's starting to soften for diesel. And once the world gets through its next growing cycles, next farming season, mm-hmm. I think there may actually be more diesel in the market, which would then drive prices down. And I can imagine running a concrete company that every little gallon of diesel makes a big difference in your bottom line. So just you know, hold tight. Keep up the great work of the podcast. I haven't listened to it yet, but I do plan to listen to your show. And that's the reason that the delta between gasoline and diesel. The other thing, if you look at it in Europe, is Europe's fleet of vehicles, not commercial vehicles, residential vehicles, the same cars and trucks people drive back and forth to work. Over the last 15 years, they've moved over to diesel. Most of their vehicles, unlike here in the U.S., run on diesel instead of gasoline. I did not know that. However, because their environmental rules and regulations in Europe, they have not let their refineries retrofit for that change. And so the refineries mm-hmm. are still making the same amount of diesel as they made 20 years ago and the same amount of gasoline, which means often throughout the year, Europe has a surplus of gasoline they can't use, and gasoline has a shelf life. So then they sell that gasoline here in the U.S. for pennies on the dollar because they have to get some of their money back, but they can't produce enough diesel. So if you're talking about Europe, there needs to be some regulation changes over there allow the refineries to step up to modern mix between gasoline-powered vehicles and diesel-powered vehicles. But anyway, thanks for writing in, Seth. All right, and see you at NAEP, bro. See you at NAEP, yeah. <laughs> All right, the next comes from Rudy. I heard Peter Zahan on a recent Joe Rogan podcast state that if the Russian oil and gas goes offline, the pressure backs up the pipelines. Eventually, the wells will freeze shut. We lose that production, and to get it back, you have to redrill the wells. He then followed up by stating the last time this happened, it took the Russians 30 years to redrill everything. Is that BS, real, or a mix of the two? That's a really great question. It's BS. Peter Zellin is a geopolitical social media figure. Yeah. I don't know him. I don't really know of him. I've just seen him around. And I also, everybody, I didn't listen to his interview with Joe Rogan. So this is coming from what Rudy said happened on Joe Rogan's podcast. The production side of a producing well can freeze because what comes out of the ground is not just oil or gas. It's also sand and water and, uh-huh. else, and that water freezes, right? That absolutely can happen. But the well itself doesn't freeze shut, even in Russia. So there's no way they'd have to go back and redrill those wells unless there was something wrong with the casing. And if the water did freeze and it moved that casing, then they'd have to go out and drill the casing out, which to the layman would look like you're drilling a new well, but you're right. really just drilling out the casing. Right. And it took Russians 30 years to redrill everything. Sorry, that's just bull. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe Peter should listen to Oil and Gas this week and learn more about the Oil and Gas. I industry. listened to a little bit of it, but I never got to that part because it was like, I don't know, I think two hours long and I only got through like I don't know maybe 30 minutes and so did they talk a lot about the Russian production and the freezing or they were talk- just talking about Russia and Ukraine yeah. mainly yeah. like all that now the other thing that he says here the pressure backs up in the pipelines eventually is the well free shut so if you're not offloading what's in the pipeline and you're not controlling the pressures which I can't imagine any pipeline operator not doing that right. the pressure would back up but what happens when you don't offload the pipeline is they start shutting things down to keep the pressure consistent yeah. because you don't want to leak Here, you don't want to leak because it's the wrong thing to do for the environment. In Russia, you don't want to leak because you're losing money, right? It's money leaking on the ground. 
And I know they have great process controls, even if they're old over there. So the Russian oil and gas goes offline. The pressure backs up in the pipelines. No, the pressure doesn't back up in the pipelines. Eventually, the wells free shut. They can, but it's the water. We lose that production. You don't really lose that production. You lose the infrastructure. Yeah. And you don't have to redrill the well unless, like I said, they lost the casing. You have to drill the casing out. So hopefully that makes sense to you, Rudy. All righty. All right. Next is from Brian Balance. Great podcast, but you guys don't do enough midstream. Also, have you ever set up an investment mix based on your predictions? How did it work out? Love his name, Brian Balance. It sounds like it should be a podcast. Well, he's got triple B happen over here because it says Brian B Balance. Brian, you need a podcast. I don't care what it's about. He's got the perfect. (laughs) Maybe you should do a podcast on midstream. Yeah. So, Brian, we try to cover midstream. The reason we don't cover as much of it is most of the news in the oil and gas industry is typically upstream. Yeah. And then for the last couple of years, what's second to that is politics, which we're trying to get away from. That's why we're launching the geopolitical show. Which I'm pumped about. I'm actually pumped up about it too. It's going to (laughs) be great. But we do try to cover midstream. So my personal investment mix follows somewhat my predictions, but I would never publish that. Do you know how much liability? I would oh my be God. In? And maybe not so much like civil liability, but just the outcry in the public. If people lost money based on what I said, yeah. I don't even want to touch it. I got enough haters now because of my views on climate change and how much I love the oil and gas industry. I don't need financial haters. And Brian, if you ever want me to share what my personal investments are, I'll do that with you. Like I said, I'm super conservative. I do zero day trade. The only day trade I do is have a buddy of mine that sits on a fund and he'll call me and tell me to buy something or short something. I'll sell it. And I will. And 99% of the time I make the money, but he's the one doing the work. I'm just his friend. Most of what I do is zero load mutual funds. I do have a lot of individual stocks in oil and gas companies, but that's because when I started my career with Bell South 25 years ago, I had all the gas accounts that were Bell South. So all the major super majors, all the major independents, all the big service companies. And so I bought a little bit of stock in each one in case they ever ran to an executive. And I could honestly say I was a shareholder <laughs> from a sales point of view. And I just lucked up since the 80s. Those stocks have done me extremely well. But the truth is I wasn't that smart. I was just buying stocks in my companies, my company's customers. Get it so out. I could say that I was a shareholder. But good question. All right, this one's a long one. We need a snack for this one. I know. <laughs> you know me, I love me some snacks. All right, so this one's from Dayton Page. I love the podcast. I've been listening for about six months now, and I recommend it to just about everyone. Thank you. I had a couple of questions. Number one, when it comes to politics and the views on oil and gas, in my mind, everything is so black and white with how the government controls oil and gas prices through the policies and blames the industry saying it's their fault. Then mainly the left blindly believes. How do I go about trying to influence and teach those in my network who may be on the side of thinking oil and gas is evil? So a couple of things. Go to the motorpoint.com, which is my original company. And in the blog, there is a video I posted about carbon and hydrocarbons. And basically, hydrocarbons are natural organic sources of energy. And it's not opinion, it's scientific fact. And I show how it's made. And once people that don't understand our industry see where hydrocarbons come from, they soften their views. Now, you're not going to change their mind. If you have people rock solid believe that oil and gas is evil, in my experience, it's a waste of time to even talk to them. Yeah. But if they think oil and gas is bad, but they're not sure, yes, you absolutely can talk to them. Uh, Show them the facts. Let them know that modern lifestyle is impossible without hydrocarbons, that everything that they do is either made from hydrocarbons or it was transported by hydrocarbons. And as far as our government control in oil and gas prices, they really don't. The market is the biggest influence in prices. The government tries to control prices with their policies, but what they really do is control access to affordable energy for everybody. Yep. You know, what's going on right now is energy prices around the world and here in the U.S. are going through the roof, and that's for our own messed up energy policies. Anyway, mm-hmm. what's next? 
And number two, I'm an operations engineer for a frack service company, mainly servicing the scoop and stack. We're a mom and pop a company, but have grown quickly from 200 employees three years ago to 800 to today. It's oh, wow. Pop anymore. No, it's not. <laughs> you said this week about unconventional struggling is so true, especially with the experience part. We either get post-COVID lazies, what I figure is a lack of ambition and work ethic that came from people being paid to stay at home and not work, or complete green hats. We've made a training program to bring green oil field workers into a low-level position like wash bay, iron shop, etc., and progress them through as they learn. We also provide help obtaining a CDL after the program is complete. I guess this was less of a question and wanted to confirm your remarks on the struggles in unconventional in the service industry. Dude, I love what your company's doing and taking people with zero experience and holding their hand and walking them through the easy parts of the industry, including getting their CDL. You're helping making people that are non-productive a productive part of the workforce. Hats off to you and your company for doing that. Yeah, and there's a number three. I love my company and don't want to leave, but I had this burning ambition to learn. It's fed with the ability to create projects, and basically I have free range to create, change, and improve our field data collection and operations. But I'm also curious about what I could be doing to feed that desire to learn and grow in the industry outside of teaching myself and using that in my current role. I currently work 80 hours a week just because I always find new things to work on, so I don't have a lot of free time. Any advice is welcome. So first thing is you can't set up a new learning path and a new skill set working eight hours a week. Yeah, no kidding. If you have a family or not, that's a lot. I do 50 hours a week. That's maxed out, right? Yeah. It's hard to have a quality of life with more than that. Not saying you shouldn't work 80 hours a week. What I'm saying is your goal should be be able to reduce that to 60, 50 or 60, then bring on something new. And here's something you could think I'm crazy, Dalton. You should start a podcast and 100% seriously. I have that same desire to learn. I've had it my entire life. It took me a long time to figure it out. I can rattle off a hundred things that I've mastered and then discard them because the enjoyment for me was learning about the new thing and not actually doing it. Scuba diving is one. I mean, I could tell you. I was going to say, didn't you want to be a police officer? All kinds of stuff. Didn't yeah. you get your license as a masseuse? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I could go on and on and on. <laughs> can you see me giving massages? No. <laughs> <laughs> but I know where all the insertions and origins are. I can talk you through that too. I think first thing is realistically, you got to cut your work hours down to 50 or 60. If that means hire somebody to take some things on or push them some stuff off on other people's plate. Once you get there, you really should start a podcast. You're working as an operations engineer at frack service company. That's a great subject for a podcast. And the reason I say that is number one, it will help with that creative, always learning side of you. Number two, you get to interview everybody and anybody that you know it's out there so you can continue to learn from them. And then you can actually help educate your listeners, which feels good. But if you'd like to discuss this more, reach out to me. Anybody that put this much time typing in a note to me on LinkedIn, I will absolutely set up a call with. Man, speaking of LinkedIn, I think I've seen this guy before, Michael Crapo. Yeah. Yeah. For next Friday Q&A, could you please discuss any books, industry experts you think provide useful information to learn more about the oil and gas markets? There is so much information out there. So finding relevant experts is beyond yourself would be very helpful. Yeah, I don't consider myself an expert, Michael. I'm just always learning. Michael's one that wrote in and wanted to know where I got my data for my views. On oh, yeah, 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 right. yeah, 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 yeah. There's so many good books. One day we need to sit down page and put a page on our website for all the books that we recommend, all the books that guests recommend. I have a list. Do you? Yeah. A couple of ones off the top of my head, Michael. Fundamentals of Investing, Oil and Gas, Oil and Gas Trading, the Global Oil and Gas Industry, Project Finance for the Oil and Gas Industry. Mine's mostly about leadership. So those are the only books. We oil have. and Gas Trading and Hedging. Ooh. 
Fundamentals of the Trading, the Energy Industry. There's a bunch of really good books out there. The other thing, there's a massive amount of really good information both on YouTube and on podcasts. So I think if you'd spend some time just kind of searching through all that, you'll find a lot of information. I will warn you, though, as much great information is out there, especially in the books, with the YouTube videos and the podcasts, especially if they're, say, four years, especially since they're post-pandemic, say 2020 and newer, you have a lot of people that talk about stuff that, quite honestly, they don't know what they're talking about. Like our buddy uh, Peter on the Joe Rogan podcast (laughs) talk about having to redrill, 30 years redrill the wells. So just take anything that's relatively new on social with a grain of salt. But the books, you absolutely can't go wrong there. Okie dokie. All right. Next one's from Amy Westheyer, Manager of Regulatory and Compliance. What's up? For at Concho. Mark and Paige, longtime listener, first time writing in. Paige, what is going on with your governor, Abbott, stopping our current administration's attacks on the Permian Basin? Seems his executive action is drawing a very distinct line in the sand, which is great. Do you think our federal government will push back? Let me answer that first. Okay, so this is hilarious because you actually brought this to my attention the other day. And I was like, wait, that's an ongoing thing. So the current status of that, the EPA has omitted its plan to impose discretionary redesignation of air quality conditions in the Permian Basin. And to give a little background on that, this started back in January 2021. A week after President Biden was sworn in office, Abbott issued an executive order, which directs every state agency to use all lawful powers and tools and to challenge any federal action that threatens the continued strength, vitality, and independence of the energy industry. Jeez, he fired both barrels right at the start. Right at the start. And then we get to June 2022. Abbott sends a letter to Biden with regards of how the EPA's processes could interfere with the production of oil in Texas, which the price at the pump is as high as it was when it was. Then we get July, the EPA responds to Abbott. Actually, the original letter was actually sent to President Biden and Biden made the EPA respond. So the EPA responds to Abbott reaffirming their plans to attack Texas oil and gas production and jeopardize our nation's gasoline supply with an arbitrary discretionary redesignation. So here comes August. Abbott sends a letter in response to Biden's ongoing attack on the Permian Basin, outlining the flawed logic and data employed to proceed with their stated goals of ending fossil fuels. And then we get to just the other day. The Biden administration releases its fall 2022 unified agenda of regulatory and deregulatory actions, which includes planned rulemakings and federal action. In it, the EPA omitted its plan to impose discretionary redesignation of air quality conditions in the Permian Basin. They backed down. They backed down. You know what I bet happened? What? I bet all the EPA enforcers saw the boys in Midland and go, there's no way I'm going to Midland and making them stop what they're doing. (laughs) I'm scared of those people. Well, there were a lot of rallies in Odessa. A lot of people jumped on board with this to protect the industry and uh, keep the price of the pump not as bad as it could have been. But I hope that answers your question. And then she had another one. Mark, in your predictions, you talk about an anti-renewable movement, but you also say it's not a good thing. Can you explain why? And I hope to meet you both at a conference one day soon. So, Amy, here's the thing. And I'm actually already starting to see it happen. I'm not going to lie. I laugh, right? I'm seeing a lot of 
organizations and individuals and companies push back on renewables around the world, and it's not a good thing. We all need energy, and the world needs cheap, reliable, abundant energy if it wants to flourish, and we can provide that. But that energy comes from a mix, and that mix has always changed. In the beginning, we used biofuels. You heard me say this a million times. We burned wood. There's still a large part of the world's population that burns wood and cattle dung to make heat and food for themselves, which is horrible for the environment, horrible for them, especially when it's done indoors. We've allowed energy to become politicized, which is dangerous in itself. You're seeing what's happened not just here but around the world because you have politicians who don't understand basic science making rules and regulations that affect the energy industry. What we need to have is a disconnect between politics and energy. I don't like this, even though I do laugh at it. The reason I don't like this anti-renewable backlash is coming is it perpetuates that us versus them. Hydrocarbons versus renewables. It's not what it should be. It's about energy. Does it make fiscal sense? renewables are great. They're not the cure-all, right? Renewables have an impact to the environment, just like hydrocarbons, but both the impact of hydrocarbons and renewables can be mitigated. We're smart at doing this, but it really bugs me that we still have this us versus them mentality, which in a lot of ways is kept going by the very politicians that are trying to move the needle one way or the other, because they know as long as it's us versus them, as long as we're fighting each other, we can't stand together. I'd like to stand together with the renewable industry and have sound energy policy that benefits everybody. So that's why I think it's not a good thing. Yeah. All right. So let's wrap it up with Rebecca Henry, petroleum engineer at Devon. First things, guys, I love this show. I've been listening since college and just love both your chemistry and your ability to break down complex issues and make them easy to understand. Any advice on how an experienced petroleum engineer can move up to management? This is like the opposite opposite question. (laughs) Please keep doing what you're doing. (laughs) You want to take a shot at it? You want me to take a shot No, that's all you. That is kind of funny, actually. (laughs) All right, so Rebecca, so first thing, you got one leg up because you're a petroleum engineer in an industry that loves petroleum engineers. That should help you. The other thing I would do if you're trying to move up to upper management, most medium to large companies have some type of mentorship where they assign a senior leader to you and y'all figure out what you want to do together. Meet once a month for coffee. You meet in his office. Find your company's mentorship program. Join. And when they assign you an executive, be very clear without being pushy that you want to move up in management. This industry right now has a shortage of talents. It has a shortage of leaders. And any young person, especially if they're a petroleum engineer, that makes it well known that they want to move up in management, you will get your shot. The other thing is besides engaging with your mentorship program at your company, or if you're in a smaller company, they don't have that, go to your manager and ask for stretch assignments. Ask for assignments that are outside your normal job duties, maybe even things to help make the company run more efficiently other than your petroleum engineering duties. And that always flags you as a high performer that people will take notice of. But really, it's just a matter of you letting it known that you want to move up, finding the right path. The other thing is don't be afraid to venture outside your comfort zone. You know, we talked earlier about the person that was the engineer that wanted to move up. Right. And I talked about project management. A petroleum engineer going to work on the renewable side of the business would be amazing. Your subsurface engineering skill sets and experience that you had dealing with hydrocarbons also apply themselves to a lot of things, geothermal, wind, and but you have that hydrocarbon background. So raise your hand. Let your company know that you want to move up. If you have a mentorship program, join I was that. just about to say mentorship. Yeah. And if not, ask your management for some stretch assignments to show that you're a top performer and you will move up in the company. All right. So what's going on with this week in uh, oil and gas or what is it called? I don't this know. Week I petroleum the- history. Oh, that. Okay. I clicked on it and then it moved. And then I was like, wait, where am I? Okay. So this week in 1911, North Texas Oil Discovery brings the boom. 
The producer's oil company discovered an electro oil field in North Texas, bringing the first commercial oil production to Wichita County. The Wagoneer Number no. 5 was their top producing well, producing a, oh my God, 50 barrels a day. <laughs> <laughs> we shouldn't laugh. No. But it's funny that they thought that was like a top producing well then. All right. It just shows you how technology improved process and tools make things better and better. January 9th to January 15th. In 1862, Union oil arrives in England during the Civil War. I didn't realize that we actually shipped oil. Well, we did. It's a oh. six-week voyage from Philadelphia. It was a brig, which is basically a warship. They carried 901 barrels of oil and 428 barrels of kerosene from Pennsylvania. That is pretty cool. And then in 1866, Patton describes early rot- rotary rig. Peter Swinney of New York City received a U.S. patent for the improvement in rock drilling design that include the basic elements of a modern rotary rig. What great stuff. I mean, all the way back to the 1800s. When are we going to become full circle on this and start saying the same things over and over again? Whenever we In a year? This. Yeah. So hopefully our audiences <laughs> have forgotten what we said. <laughs> so we can bring it back up. Now we have to go back and see when we first start this. It I think it was summer, wasn't it? It, it, was in, it wasn't a summer. I think it was May. Okay. Cool. All right. So we may have to find something to do by this May. Maybe nobody will remember. Yeah. And we can just keep it going. Yeah. Actually, if we quit talking about it, they won't remember. Oh, that's true. But what I do want you to remember is that if you want to advertise with us, it is ridiculously easy. We have extremely cheap advertising up to amazing global reach advertising. All our prices on our website are very transparent about that. So if you want to get in front of an oil and gas audience at whatever dollar amount makes you happy, just go to OGGN.com, look for the pricing tab, check it out, let us know if we can help you. A weekly rig count page. Where it's looking good. The United States is at 775, up three as of January 13th. Canada's at 227, up 38. So I guess things have frozen over frozen over there. Over, yep. Internationally, we're down 10 at 900. Yeah, great, great, great numbers. Right. Also, what is great is join our LinkedIn page. That's where you'd find out about our Nate Podcast Pavilion, our SPE thing we're doing in Oklahoma that I can't remember the date. We're doing a live podcast there. <laughs> well, there's so we're much doing a live on. podcast this week at uh, Micro Seismic User Forum. Yeah, that will be out next week whenever. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, if you want to keep track of what we're doing, just go join the LinkedIn page. And then while you're on the interwebs, go to our website, sign up. If you go to modalpoint.com, you can actually see some of the videos that we did explain how hydrocarbons and carbon work. And also, if you go to the link in the show notes, you can sign up for our monthly oil and gas events newsletter where you find out about all the oil and gas events that are going on at one place. Then if you want, this is First Friday Q&A. If you'd like to submit a question, it's ridiculously easy. You just get in your car. No, I'm joking. (laughs) (laughs) Go to the post office. That sounds like you something you would tell one of your friends. Oh, it would be something I'd tell one of my friends to see if they would do it. And unfortunately, some of my friends would. I know. That's the best part. No, it's very simple to submit a question. Either go to oilandgasthisweek.com or OGGN.com. Either way, you can submit a question. Like you heard, if we read your question on the air, you get a big shout out. And another reminder, I know we told you all this before. If you're submitting a question and you want it to be anonymous, make sure where it says your name that you put anonymous. I literally take these questions and the day before Paige and I record, I copy and paste them. I don't even read them all. So I don't I want do. to accidentally So I go, read. I do my best to go through and go, okay, this person, let's just remove the information just so it's not said. But y'all would be saving me a little bit of time if y'all would just do that. Thank you. It'd be safer. Yeah. If you'd like myself and Paige or any of our experts to come speak at your event, no matter what it is, just reach out. We're happy to share the details. Whew, that's a lot. Yes. And it sounds like Doggo is ready for us. <laughs> oh, to yeah, go. Tucker. Yeah. Ready to get out of here? Yep. Remember, folks, do great work. Pay it forward, and we will see you next time. 
Tune in next week for another informative and entertaining episode of Oil & Gas This Week Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com. Thank you.